Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We are very glad you're here for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, crazy, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And Jim, we've talked about the Veep stakes on the Democratic side for a while now and the I would say obnoxiously public uh, campaigning on the part of Stacey Abrams, but Stacey Abrams is actually in our good martini today and not for reasons that Stacey Abrams would prefer. This is from the New York Post. They were looking at uh, Joe Biden's options for vice president since he, of course, has promised to pick a woman. And it seems, according to these Biden insiders who they don't name in this story, that Kamala Harris is still in the running. Uh, Amy Klobuchar is still in the running. The take on Stacey Abrams here is uh, definitely worth talking about. A couple different money quotes here. First one, no one takes Stacey seriously, and her public campaigning for the job seems more like a hostage negotiation than an actual attempt to get the job, a Biden insider told The Post. Biden is an old school guy and will always be. Picking Stacey would be like picking Palin. He doesn't need to throw a Hail Mary. He wants a good governing partner. And then in another quote, Stacey isn't ready on day one. Even she knows that, and it's why she's engaging in this dance. She might get perfunctorily better, but she's not a serious pick for him, and her campaign is viewed as much as promotion for her book as it is for being chosen as Biden's VP. So, Jim, we don't know who this is or how close they are to the uh, selection process. First of all, I think it's an unfair attack on Palin because, you know, she was actually really elected governor, not pretend elected governor. Uh, You can argue about whether she was the right pick at that time, although I do think she at least temporarily motivated the base in 2008. But the fact that even the Democrats see Stacey Abrams not seriously is pretty fun news to hear. The argument for Stacey Abrams to be Joe Biden's running mate is primarily coming from one corner of the country. And by that corner of the country, I mean Stacey Abrams. Maybe there are her friends and family. (laughs) Maybe there are a handful of Georgia Democrats here and there. But by and large, you don't see other big names in the Democratic Party who say, hey, out of all the options Joe Biden has, this is the one that that will do the most for him. It is kind of intriguing. And so you're right. One argument is this is, you know, Stacey Abrams campaigning not to be the running mate, but to be a top finisher in the running mate, you know, stakes uh, selection process and some job in a future Biden administration, that this is a way of keeping herself in the spotlight. This is the way of keeping herself you can't see I'm making air quotes as I say this, relevant to the Democratic Party and its uh, discussion of which direction it should go in. I think everybody on the Republican side, that if, if Biden picks Abrams, they, they, they'd lick their chops and they would say, ah, you know, this is, okay, fine, woo. You know, we thought he was going to go with somebody who could, you know, uh, avoid some of the balance things out. And, and on paper, you'd say, oh, maybe this will stir up excitement amongst the progressive grassroots. And you know, maybe it could drive up some African-American turnout. But, um, you know, there are other people who can do that and who have been elected to a statewide job and who aren't most famous for losing a race by 50,000 votes and better known for not claiming that the election was stolen from them. Stacey Abrams um, is really a very online left Twitter uh, choice. And if there's anything that the Democratic presidential primary demonstrated to us, this is, you know, when this started in the beginning of 2019 or arguably even earlier, 
that the conversations that were going on on Twitter and on social media amongst the progressive hard left were not representative of the conversations that were occurring in the broader Democratic Party, much less the country as a whole. So the idea that, you know, oh, there's this giant, you know, galvanizing, this large group of progressive voters out there who are currently going to stay home. But if he picks you know, Stacey Abrams, then they'll become activated. Uh, there's just really not much to that. And it sounds like the Biden campaign knows this. It sounds like they're, you know, you, and as I said, you're, you know, I'm sure she'll probably get brought in for the interview process. Um, but that's almost a courtesy call. That's not really a, a serious consideration. And I think the, you know, it's kind of fun to see other Democrats saying, come on, <laughs> she's not big enough. And kind of the open scoffing and skepticism. Look, if you aspire to be vice president, First of all, lie down until the feeling passes. Uh, but if but if you do, the best way to do it is to be an accomplished person. <laughs> be the kind of person that a lot of people would say, hey, that's someone I want to be a heartbeat away from the presidency. Because as I laid out earlier, in addition to being 77 years old, in addition to having the health issues that he's had in the past and two brain aneurysms and uh, all these other issues and the various medications that he's taking, all within the normal range of a 77-year-old man, but still you know, a concern. We have a pandemic going on that is particularly at risk for older men. So this pandemic will not be done by November or next January, you know, unless there's some amazing breakthrough between now and then. So you know, there's real reason to worry that Joe Biden may not be around for the full term. And if he does get around for the full term, he may not be running for another, another term. So whoever his running mate is could very well turn out to be the president of the United States a lot earlier than anybody wants them to become. So he, he can't botch this. He, this is, the stakes for this are really, really high. It's somewhat reassuring, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, that the Biden team is looking at Stacey Abrams and saying, uh, come on, <laughs> get real. Elsewhere in this article, it says that uh, Elizabeth Warren actually is the favorite among Democrats to be Biden's running mate with 31%. I still don't think that's going to happen. Uh, although it appears that, at least in the Biden camp, Midwestern moderates like Klobuchar or Gretchen Whitmer continue to have an inside track for a position. And uh, I almost go to the Princess Bride there. I don't think that word means what you think it means when you go to moderate, if you put Gretchen Whitmer or really Klobuchar in that same sentence. Uh, this insider also doesn't like Kamala Harris for the job very much because he says, quote, if they go with a black woman, it would be Kamala Harris, but she's a clunky communicator and couldn't generate any excitement for her own campaign with black or white voters. There's also a mention here, Jim, that Kirsten Gillibrand is already angling to be defense secretary. I'm not sure what you think about any of that, but uh, interesting tidbits here. <laughs> They're just picking names and positions out of a hat and just kind of, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to put myself in a really odd position of, of quasi defending Kamala Harris, right? who, who was not, you know, not only not my favorite candidate, by some measures, maybe one of the worst or most dangerous options in the Democratic field. But I'll make an observation. Kamala Harris ran out because she ran a campaign that was uh, burning through money very, very quickly. She had a really good debut in that debate, taking on Biden. And then Tulsi Gabbard gutted her like a fish, and the money stopped coming. And she's, you know, instead of being you know, she was arguably in the top four for a little while in polling, but after a couple of mediocre debates, she just kind of blended in with the rest of the crowd. And, you know, um, to paraphrase Top Gun, you know, her campaign was writing checks that her donor base couldn't cash. Uh, she just wasn't, you know, like, that's what it was. It was not, you know, again, you know there, were, there were a couple other factors. And if you want to say she's a clunky communicator, okay. You know, I, I thought the, uh, Maya Rudolph impersonation of her aspiring to have a lead character of a TNT legal drama was pretty spot on. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but one of those things like, oh, give me a, you know, give me a choice between Kamala Harris and Stacey Abrams. I don't really think it's that close. <laughs> 
right? I mean, you know, at least, uh, uh, at least Harris, we, we know how she performs in the hot lights and on, in prime time. She can be very effective at times. She can also be very ineffective in defending her record at other times. What does Stacey Abrams get you that Kamala Harris doesn't? I'm, I'm really not, uh, not seeing that. But, uh, you know, I, in the end, I'm not a Democrat, so what do I know? Last thoughts on Biden here, Jim. First of all, I saw, I think it was uh, over at Hot Air, that 26% of Democrats want someone other than Biden. That seems curiously similar to the share of the vote that Bernie Sanders was getting in multi-candidate fields, but there could be some people worried about the Tara Reid situation or the fact that he's just clearly not uh, as sharp as he once was. The two things that I've also noticed this week, Jim, that don't uh, necessarily give the best indicators if you're Biden, especially when you're trying to uh, get past the Tara Reid allegations. Number one, making Chris Dodd the chairman of your VP search, because Chris Dodd's uh, record on those issues is not exactly stellar. Um, Look up Waitress Sandwich at some point uh, on Google if the kids are not around. Also, for the second time now, uh, Joe Biden in television interviews has talked about engaging in intercourse with the rest of the world. I know that's not what he meant, but it is what he said, <laughs> and it's probably not the best messaging right now. Let me emphasize, Greg, I believe that we need to practice safe intercourse with the rest of the world, all right? No. Uh, does that count as protectionism? So, yeah, first of all, Chris Dodd, in addition to the waitress sandwich, Carrie Fisher's autobiography describes some really unsavory interactions between him and Ted Kennedy. Again, how these two guys were considered to be, you know, heroes of the left and heroes to women is, is really stomach turning. But beyond that, uh, you know, oh, by the way, let's observe any process headed up by Chris Dodd is not going to end up with Stacey Abrams. Chris Dodd did not get where he was taking wild gambles and by, you know, bold, you know, huge choices. So, you know, Chris Dodd represented Connecticut, right? Sensible, in line with the financial industry. Chris Dodd's not going to recommend any, any of that kind of stuff. Look, if Joe Biden were a normal candidate, and by that I mean, let's say 20 years younger, right? And let's say, you know, indisputably still some speed on his fastball, so to speak, uh, mentally sharp, quick on his feet, you know, all that kind of stuff. Then his normal situation would be, okay, who, who can, you know, deliver a swing state or two? Who, well, first and foremost, who's ready for the job? Two, who adds something to the ticket? Who brings in voters who might not be uh, enthused with me as is? And this is where a woman choice would, would make a lot of sense. Maybe a minority. But you'd want somebody, you'd want, or there's another argument that like, you know, if, my, if my message is a return to normalcy, right? Safety and stability, then I want my choice to reinforce that message. That was the philosophy of Al, uh, Bill Clinton picking Al Gore. There's an argument that you don't want JFK and LBJ style ticket balance anymore. Um, that when you look for ticket balance, you're kind of acknowledging, well, yeah, I, I, I do have these weaknesses. I, I need more, you know, JFK picking LBJ is kind of a, well, I guess I am kind of Northeastern establishment and, and kind of, uh, uh, you know, elitist. I need somebody with a common touch like LBJ or something like that. So you don't look for balance. You try to reinforce your own strengths and you try to make your case to the, elect the electorate. My qualities as president are so important that next to electing me as president, if God forbid something happens to me, the next best thing is someone who reminds you of me, right? That's the, you know, the philosophy there. Um, I, I guess you could say Klobuchar. You, you want somebody who's safe and stable and maybe even a little bit boring. Maybe somebody who's, you know, not a whirling dervish of raw political charisma, so to speak. You, you quoted uh, Walter Mondale in yesterday's podcast, Greg, and it's like, Walter Mondale is the definitive, this man is not a whirling dervish of raw political charisma <laughs> uh, uh, figure there. So Biden would want someone who would make people say, ah, okay, God forbid something happens to Biden, that person's going to be ready. 
Uh, and I just, you know, a bunch of those names there, Kirsten Gillibrand at the, at the Pentagon. Are you kidding me? Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> you know, you, you want America to feel as, as unnervous as possible when they head into the ballot, head to the ballot box in November and have a choice between four more years of Trump or the Democratic alternative. If I'm a media organization, the first thing I do if Kirsten Gillibrand becomes defense secretary is hire the, I just want to get some ranch lady to be my Pentagon correspondent. <laughs> All right, on to the first of our two crazies now, Jim. And uh, sometimes the left just puts it right out there for you. You know, there's a lot of times where we imagine, like with the Tara Reid story, for example, that behind the scenes, uh, why wasn't this covered as immediately and as vociferously as the Brett Kavanaugh allegations, just imagine some of these folks saying, well, Biden's our guy. He's the one, he's the only one who can beat Trump at this point. We can't hurt him too much. And so then you hear folks in the media say, no, that's not how it works. You got Chris Saliza over the years saying, we don't take sides. The media doesn't take sides. Well, New York Times, letters to the editor section from a man named Martin Tolchin, former member of the New York Times Washington Bureau, founder of Politico. I think he was also in on the founding of The Hill says this, I totally disagree with this editorial, meaning the New York Times editorial, there needs to be an investigation, get into the Delaware records about Tara Reid and so forth. I don't want an investigation. I want a coronation of Joe Biden. Would he make a great president? Unlikely. Would he make a good president? Good enough. Would he make a better president than the present occupant? Absolutely. I don't want justice, whatever that may be. I want a win. The removal of Donald Trump from office and Mr. Biden is our best chance. Suppose an investigation reveals damaging information concerning his relationship with Tara Reid or something else, and Mr. Biden loses the nomination to Senator Bernie Sanders or someone else with a minimal chance of defeating Mr. Trump. Should we really risk the possibility? Jim, I mean, you can't put it out there anymore. I don't know why he sent it to the editor to print publicly, but uh, kind of glad he did because this really does tell us a lot. Yeah. By the way, for those who are wondering, you know, who's this guy Tolchin? You know, uh, he started with the New York Times back in 1954. Give you perspective on that. He was a copy boy. Became reporter in 57, City Hall Bureau Chief from 69 to 73. And then he worked with the Washington, D.C. Bureau from 73 to 94. So this was someone who was shaping the New York Times coverage of political events. And maybe he's changed over that period of time. But inherent in this is we in the media have a responsibility to not look too hard because we might not like what we see. The most... <laughs> I'm reminded of, I, th I want to say it's Iohawk who says, the purpose of journalism is to cover big stories with a pillow until they stop breathing. <laughs> it's very revealing there. And I suppose more people in politics, in a way, like as much as we're kind of enjoying chuckling at Martin Tolchin, maybe we should just kind of say a backhanded salute to him for just saying, saying very honestly what he thinks is important and what he thinks is, is, you know, should be prioritized. He doesn't want an investigation. He wants a coronation. Does he think Biden will make a great president? No, he thinks maybe good enough, right? I don't want justice, whatever that may be. I want that to be the Biden slogan in 2020. <laughs> Joe Biden, 2020, because you don't want justice. You know, justice denied is good enough for us. You know, you can, you can, you can imagine the various, you know, and there are quite a few people who are in that. And I think I, you see this in a wide variety of how every topic gets discovered. I'm pretty unsure that there are a bunch of people that if you, you sat them down and laid out everything that I've reported on, lots, and lots of other people have been reporting on regarding China since the start of this virus, they would look at that and say, wow, that's really bad. And you'd say, okay, well, you join us in denouncing the Chinese government. They'd say, oh, no, no, I can't do that because Trump is against China. 
right? They don't want to do that because they don't want to admit that, well, maybe Trump has a point, uh, or they don't want to acknowledge that some problems in this earth cannot be traced back to Donald Trump. Um, or they probably don't want to either, they're consciously or subconsciously, don't want to confront the fact that anti-Trumpism or anti-Republicanism or anti-conservatism, whatever, you know, whatever it is they're opposed to, that is not sufficient to find the solutions in this world, right? We need more. We, we need to, you know, you need to look at the world with a broader lens. And Martin Tolchin is saying, standing athwart <laughs> this instinct to know more and yelling, stop, <laughs> do not seek the truth because it may frighten you or it may inconvenience you or it may make it harder to win. And that the single most important thing in the entire world is winning much more important than the truth and certainly much more important than justice and certainly much more important than anything Tara Reid is saying. This is the arguably the most honest statement we've ever seen in the New York Times. It also is a reprehensible and horrible way to look at this world, but uh, hey, points are honesty, Martin. I guess so. I guess so. But uh, I mean, this is almost verbatim what uh, a lot of people have said about the mainstream media and perhaps the Times in particular for a very long time here and to just uh, have it published in their own paper by a guy who worked for them for decades is utterly amazing. All right, let's go on to our final crazy martini now, Jim. And as you know, the great reopen or not reopen debate is happening in places all over the country, some states uh, moving sooner than others. Uh, in Texas, Texas seems to be moving sooner than most, but not uh, necessarily for all businesses. Uh, we have the story of the hairdresser who refused to stay closed, and now she's going to jail for seven days. But the story we're going to talk about here is uh, over in, I believe, Odessa, Texas. And this is what the New York Post reports. A SWAT team used an armored vehicle to raid a Texas bar that opened for business in defiance of the coronavirus lockdown, 86ing the owner and six heavily armed vigilantes who were defending her, according to reports. Vigilantes in quotes. So... That's what the police called them. Big Daddy Zane's bar owner, Gabrielle Ellison, 47, told the Odessa American that she called on Open Texas to defend her so she could defy the executive order to close, which they all deem unconstitutional. When police arrived Monday, there were at least 20 protesters there, including six outside brandishing loaded AR-15 type weapons, police told the paper. Multiple deputies and Texas troopers rolled up Monday with an armored personnel carrier aiming their guns at the armed protesters and screaming for them to put down their weapons. Uh, Ellison was arrested for defying the lockdown while six men were arrested for possessing firearms on a licensed property. The sheriff says he understands their side of it, but uh, the governor's orders defying those is one thing, but bringing in a bunch of armed vigilantes in his words, uh, he says he's got a problem with that. So Jim, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is the line from Die Hard that the police have themselves an RV. Uh, as they bring in this giant vehicle. And so I, I'm sure there's uh, uh, reprimanding to do here on both sides. But when you see a SWAT team come into this situation, and then I think it was in New York where they were, uh, they had the cops tackling people for social distance violators, not a good look. Well, I'm also going to make an observation, Greg. This is one of those days that really stinks to be doing an audio-only podcast because there are some things you really need to see including one particular photo that's floating around on social media, to, you know, showing two of the cops who are, who are responding, who were wearing their vests, who had their rifles, but who um, appeared to have spent a considerable amount of time in the donut shop. Uh, I'm just going to make an observation. And I, you know, people say, oh, Jim, you're in no position to, to throw stones. If those guys didn't have the rifles, 
I wouldn't be that worried, Greg, because I think I could outrun them. And I can't, I'm no, I'm no Usain Bolt. Okay. I, I am, you know, I mean, maybe I run down a hill, these guys trip, they roll down the hill, they overtake me. Um, that's, that's, you know, they, they, you know, and I look, I understand, you know, physically capable bodies can come in all kinds of shapes and sizes and all, but, um, yeah, these guys do not look like, these guys look like they, they might be able to, uh, handle anything on the job except the Stairmaster. I, I'd hate to get into a struggle with these guys, but I think, you know, um, one of the things that would be going for me would be the cholesterol that's in them. Um, these, these are, these are some really rotund policemen. And I think if, you know, besides the fact that again, the giant armored personnel, like this, this looks like a, a onion-esque parody of police over response. We had this, these discussions going back to, to, uh, Ferguson. And even before that, when you picture a policeman, whatever image you have, maybe if you're of a certain age, you're it's shaped by Ponch and John on chips, you know, or my childhood Sergeant Murphy in the Richard Scarry books, you know, you have this idea of a policeman and you know, the requirements, the level of violence in society required police to start wearing vests. I have no beef with that. That's completely understandable. Cops wear these things. They know it's not going to, it may not necessarily save their life. There's no guarantee they'll get hit, you know, in the chest, but they wear it because they need to. Uh, The need for greater firepower, the need for rifles. I'm not going to, you know, begrudge them that. However, the more and more your police start to look like a military force, you start to wonder if they begin, and they have this idea, this mentality of I am at war. You begin to wonder if they act more like soldiers and less like police. And I think most people who've studied law enforcement will say, look, community interaction is, is the lifeblood of police, of good police work. You need to be interacting with the citizenry. You need to be people to trust you. You need people to be able to tell you things so that you can track down leads and, and catch criminals and such. Every time your cop looks like somebody who's going on patrol in Fallujah, does that increase the likelihood that this is going to be in some sort of uh, uh, lead to a conflict? And so again, I, you know, I don't like second guessing cops, but this really does look like some sort of situation where they really almost were comically unaware of how they would look and whether it was necessary for, you know, whether all that really was necessary for a response that I think you can argue amounts to a form of civil disobedience at this point. I mean, maybe it would turn into uncivil disobedience, but we have this whole argument about the need for de-escalation. And now all of a sudden the quarantine is starting and we're calling out the SWAT team on people who are gathering without, you know, without permission. We're going to see more of this, aren't we? I was going to say, it's May. We warned you. Weather's going to get nice. The more you overreact, the more people are going to be defiant of these things. Um, my good friend Cam Edwards made the observation that he, you know, he, he completely agreed with the people who were protesting. He thought a lot of these rules were being ridiculous, but he, you know, was worried about the gathering in groups. And I think it was uh, Chris, Chris Lash, Dana Lash's husband, who said, the thing is that you get together in a crowd, it's harder for them to arrest one of you, right? We, we've seen the cases of them arresting the one, the, the, the husband, the father playing catch with his daughter and stuff like that. If there's a big group of you, the cops are less likely to try to arrest everyone. And again, there's always a chance that they'll bring out the SWAT team in the armored you know, vehicle for, you know, hey, we've got, you know, we got a, we got a group of more than 10 and it does not appear to be Antonio Cromartie and his kids. <laughs> Work it out, people. Let's uh, get open as responsibly and as quickly as we can here. Jim, that's a lot of crazy for one day. We'll see what we got tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review with five stars. Get us on those home devices by saying play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And join us again Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.